0: welcome to the british history podcast my name is jamie and this is episode 373 the first king this show is ad free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent i offer members only content including extra episodes and rough transcripts and you can get instant access to all the members extras by signing up for membership at the british history podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month and thank you very much to rita elizabeth and beta for signing up already Earl Elfgar was having a rough time. The clergy and local lords of East Anglia had never really warmed up to him since his appointment to the post in 1053. Their loyalty to Harold and the House of Godwin went so deep that we can still see evidence of it in surviving records. So Elfgar's governance over East Anglia was likely difficult. Every move he made was likely being hampered by an intransigent local aristocracy who saw him as nothing more than a carpetbagger. But I suppose that is the price you sometimes have to pay for a large territory and an important title that was just handed to you because, you know, you're from the right family. But that title and territory wasn't without its own problems. Because soon thereafter, the king, pushed by the House of Godwin, took Norfolk away from Elfgar which was fully one half of his earldom. And then he gave it to Gerth Godwinson. And I'm sure that they made excuses when this happened and claimed that it would make governing easier since it would be throwing a bone to the locals who wanted to serve under a Godwinson. But as far as Elfgar was concerned, he was still sitting there with now half of the earldom that he had before. And then suddenly, Earl Seward of Northumbria died. And that earldom became available, which probably seemed like a really good solution to this problem. Elfgar could just move up to Northumbria and get away from these grumpy East Anglians. He could have a fresh start and a full earldom. And then the East Anglians could finally get the Godwinson they'd wanted all along. It probably seemed like everything was lining up for this. But then they gave Northumbria to Tostig. And as we talked about last episode, there were good reasons to give that region to Tostig. But here's the thing about Tostig, because we really haven't spoken much about him. Tostig was a whole thing. Apparently, Tostig and Harold Godwinson did have some things in common. They were both handsome, responsible, and brave. Both were rather serious and competent and tended to play their cards close to their chests. But in almost every other way, the two men were quite different. Harold was welcoming and had a friendly demeanor whereas Tostig was a bit more closed off. Harold was tall, Tostig wasn't. Harold was easygoing and he'd discuss his plans with his companions and didn't even mind being contradicted. Tostig, on the other hand, was secretive and despised dissension. Harold tended to seek out fun, whereas Tostig was focused intensely on the task at hand. According to records, Tostick was deeply religious. He was also inflexible on his convictions. And apparently, he didn't even use foul language. While Harold... Harold could f***ing hang. Finally, Tostick was known for being absolutely ruthless in his pursuit of evildoers. Though how you'd feel about that trait probably came down to whether or not Tostick felt you were an evildoer. So while Harold was the fun brother who had a lot of friends and knew how to work a crowd... Tostig, on the other hand, was the taciturn loner who kept his own counsel and who would ruthlessly pursue you to the ends of the earth if he had a beef with you. And recently, he'd been beefing with Elfgar's family. And it was this creepy Stannis Baratheon type dude who just got the lands that Elfgar wanted. So you can imagine how this probably made the Lord feel, right? And version E of the Chronicle tells us that it was at about this point where things in the English court went completely off the rails. The document reports that when Elfgar heard the news, words escaped him against his will. As for what those words were, well, it's a glorious mess of a situation. Here's the quote. quote he was charged with being a traitor to the king and to all the people of the country. And he admitted this before all the people who were assembled there though the words escaped him against his will, end quote. So he found out he wasn't getting the earldom he wanted and blurted out something treasonous against the king and the entire kingdom in response. I love this guy. Now, unfortunately, the scribes don't give us a transcript of what was said, but I bet it was epic and more than a little threatening because this sounds like he had a total meltdown in court when Tostig got Northumbria. And so he probably said some things he shouldn't have something bad enough that he got himself outlawed. And being exiled from England for running his mouth really would have made a fitting end to what had been a truly awful few years for the Earl now turned exile. Only it wasn't an end for Elfgar, was it? No, because Elfgar, faced with this exile, realized something important. He was f***ing Elfgar, And if this king and his council of thieves thought that they could take Norfolk, Northumbria, and then all of East Anglia from him without any consequences, then they were out of their minds. This demanded a response, and Elfgar knew exactly the kind of response that these Godwinsons and their puppet king would understand. Some goddamn pirates. So Elfgar got himself a boat and he ordered the captain to set sail for Ireland. Meanwhile, Queen Edith, Earl Harold, and the rest of the Godwins remained hard at work in court, pressing their advantage and gaining ever more power into their hands. And so at about this same time, Winna, another son of Godwin, was made the Earl of Essex, Middlesex, Hertford, Surrey, and probably Buckinghamshire while Cambridgeshire and Oxfordshire were brought under Earl Gerth of East Anglia's control. And while we can't say for certain precisely who was responsible for this rapid acquisition of power, it is interesting that as soon as Queen Edith changed her focus and began working to support her brothers, her brothers suddenly became incredibly powerful. And now, likely thanks to Edith's strategy, all of England with the exception of Mercia and a few small shires, were under the direct control of the House of Godwin. And this put Edward in an interesting position. If he wanted to rule as king, rather than as a mere puppet of the Godwinsons, he would need a free hand. And since the Godwinsons had gained control over almost all of England and had divvied it up amongst themselves... That meant that Edward's freedom of action wouldn't come from having a rival faction support him, like had been the case in the early 1050s. Instead, conflict between the Godwinsons was probably Edward's last and best hope at regaining some semblance of independent rule. And so it does make you wonder if Edward saw this and was working in the margins to create some of the chaos that we see later on in the story. Unfortunately, our sources are scant, so we can't know for sure what role, if any, King Edward played in the Godwinson's growing family drama. But it was going to get dramatic. Meanwhile, in Ireland, Elfgar was hard at work. If England had learned anything about King Edward, it was that he threw outlawry and exile around freely. He had no compunctions about kicking you out of his kingdom. But he also revoked the exiles just as freely. Provided, of course, that you gave him a reason to do so. And most recently, the Godwins had shown that pirates were a pretty good motivator for the king. So Elfgar decided to take a page out of their playbook and he went on a hiring spree. I don't care, I love it, I don't care. And before long, he had 18 ships of pirates under his command, which wasn't bad. But considering that most of England was out for his blood at this point, 18 ships wasn't gonna be enough. He needed backup. And Elfgar's best shot at support was King Gruffith at Pluellen. You see, King Gruffith was powerful. So powerful by this point that he controlled almost all of Wales. He also had plenty of experience in fighting the English. In fact, King Gruffith had launched one of his devastating raids only a few years earlier during that whole thing when the Godwins returned from exile. Furthermore, Gruffith had a history of working with the English. But the devil is in the details. Because while Gruffith did have a history of working with the English, the Englishman that he worked with was a Godwinson. So it might be difficult to convince him to launch a war that could pit him against that very same family. Furthermore, Gruffydd's relationship with Elfgar's family wasn't exactly cozy. In fact, pretty soon after Gruffith became king in 1039, he killed Elfgar's uncle, Edwin, in an ambush. The truth is, there were plenty of reasons for a rivalry between Elfgar and Gruffith. Plenty of reasons for this Welsh king to either outright refuse Elfgar or capture him in hopes of securing a closer relationship with the Godwinsons. But both men also had some very good reasons to set aside their differences and find a way to make this work. For Elfgar, he had the advantage that virtually all rebels have. Desperation. He had, at most, about a thousand Vikings supporting him, which would make for an impressive raiding fleet, but it wasn't nearly enough to be able to challenge the power of the English crown. Especially since the Godwins were now working with that crown. And the fact was, if Elfgar wanted to get back home, he didn't just need to challenge King Edward and the Godwin Sins. He needed to win. And that meant he didn't have the luxury of being picky. He had to shoot the moon. And so while other nobles might have let themselves get carried away with animosity and blood feuds, for Elfgar, he had no choice but to make friends. As for King Gruffith, well... The timing of all of this couldn't have been better because this English exile and his Irish pirate fleet were exactly what Gruffith needed. You see, while England had been locked into a power struggle between the crown and the Godwinsons, King Gruffith had been locked in a power struggle of his own between King Gruffith and King Gruffith, no relation. You see, for 16 years, Gruffith ap Llewelyn of Gwynedd, the Gruffith who was meeting with Elfgar, had been relentlessly amassing power in Wales. It had been a long project, and there had been setbacks, including outright treachery within his ranks that threatened to bring the whole thing crashing down around his head. But overall, the last decade and a half had been one of consistent growth for King Gruffith's power base. But it wasn't unchallenged. And his biggest rival was to the south, King Gruffith ap Rhythirk of Dehibarth. And like the northern King Gruffith, this southern King Gruffith had also been amassing a tremendous amount of power. Claiming the right to rule through his father, this southern Gruffith had expelled the previous King of Deheibarth in 1045. And from that moment on, he had proven himself to be a resolute and formidable ruler, handily expelling incursions from Viking fleets and also resisting invasion attempts by his northern rival, King Gruffydd of Gwynedd. And because King Gruffydd of Gwynedd had larger ambitions than simply holding northern and central Wales, because he wanted to be the first true king of Wales, he had no choice but to defeat King Gruffydd of de Hybarth, but that was a tall order. And then along came Elfgar, this crazy tempestuous English noble who also had a fleet of about a thousand Viking warriors. And he was a guy who was so desperate, he was willing to do just about whatever it took to get some help on his campaign. A campaign, I should add, that ultimately would make King Gruffith of Gwyneth rather popular because who doesn't love to raid the English? And that, I suspect, was probably one of the biggest motivators for King Gruffith of Gwynedd. If he could make this alliance work, the popularity of raiding the English would make mustering an army a lot easier. Because the truth is that mustering an army in Wales was no easy thing during this era. A king couldn't just ride around and stay wherever he wanted and take whoever he wanted for his army. The king did have his professional warriors, of course, but as for additional troops, Gruffith likely would have had to travel to the various townships known as maerdreffy, and those would have functioned as the central fortification points for the surrounding local treff, which roughly translates to village or settlement. Now, typically, there would have been fifty of these settlements that would have been placed under the dominion of the Dreffi, and it would be from those settlements that the region's tele basically their local conscripts, would be drawn. And so the king would have likely gone from point to point, gathering forces as he went. However, the king's ability to do that would have been constrained by Welsh law and custom. And both of those were wide-ranging and also subject to interpretation. So it's likely that Griffith's mustering would have included a fair amount of debate as to what laws governed this term of service and how to go about it. For example, does this mustering come under the dominion of laws regarding hosting, which said that the king had unlimited access to his own country, but as for regions outside of his lands, he could only require service once a year, and in that circumstance, only for a month and a fortnight, basically six weeks. And after that, it was done, period. In many ways, the difficulties that Welsh kings faced with their conscript armies mirrored the difficulties faced by the English when dealing with the Ferd. You might recall that when the term of service was up for the Ferd, they'd just up and leave, even when victory was right on their doorstep. That same danger existed for Welsh armies too. And so what Griffith needed was a popular reason to muster, because that way he could get a force large enough to accomplish what he wanted in a very short period of time. So, while King Gruffydd of Gwyneth had ties with the Godwinsons, the fact of the matter was that necessity makes strange bedfellows. And my guess is that a campaign into England was just what he needed to entice his subjects to answer the muster. So, King Gruffydd of Gwyneth agreed to help Elfgar, And, presumably at this point... To secure their alliance, King Gruffydd Llewelyn married Elfgar's daughter, Eldgith. And then he set about gathering his forces. Now based on what we know about this campaign and the scale of Gruffydd's dominion, it's likely that the Welsh king provided about 2,500 fighting men, which would have dwarfed Elfgar's conscript forces that likely numbered around 1,000 fighting men. In addition, looking to Welsh laws and literature, it's likely that King Gruffith also provided a large number of pack horses to carry their supplies. And this would be in addition to a supply train that likely would have included both a plan for ferrying supplies into England, as well as local sympathizers that would help them maintain themselves during the campaign. And that is all key support, because a lot of logistics would be required for an invasion of this size. 3,500 fighting men is a substantial force. For scale, what Elfgar and Gruffith were bringing into England was about half the size of what William the Conqueror brought with him when he invaded England in 1066. What was happening here was a serious undertaking and a substantial threat for England. But first, Gruffith had a little housekeeping to handle. You see, Elfgar and his fleet were headed to Hereford, and as such, they were sailing towards the River Wye. If King Gruffith of Gwyneth wanted to meet up with them and unite their forces, and if this combined force was to attack Hereford, then he would need to advance through Gwent and Arkenfield. And that meant that King Gruffith of Gwyneth would need to gather his army of about 2,500 soldiers and first march south into the lands of his rival, King Gruffith of Hybarth. Which, I suspect, was the plan all along. And it's thought that King Gruffith of Gwynedd exploited the rivalries that existed in southern Wales by allying himself with the rulers of Glamorgan. Which ultimately would have made this march to join up with Elfgar less of a march and more of an invasion of dehybarth, An invasion, I should add, that was taking the form of a pincer movement. Gruffith coming from the north, Glamorgan coming from the east. And suddenly, the southern King Gruffith had to fight a war on two fronts. It was a brilliant move, and I don't know what role, if any, Elfgar and his forces played in this invasion. Moreover, I don't know how the forces were arrayed, nor the precise details of how any of this played out. Our sources are irritatingly tight-lipped about what was one of the most consequential battles in the life of King Gruffith at Pluellen. We're simply told... That quote, Gruffith ap Llewelyn slew Gruffith ap end quote. That's it. A single sentence. And that's criminal, because when Gruffith of Gwynedd defeated his rival and seized his lands, he ceased being the king of Gwynedd. Gruffith was now so powerful that Morganwig and Gwent no longer had any chance of resisting him and were quickly annexed into his lands. Meaning in that moment, ap Llewellyn did something that even Rodri the Great had found to be outside of his grasp. He had annexed the entire region. He had become the first true king of all of Wales. It was something that had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. It had been 16 years in the making, but now he'd done it. And Gruffith celebrated this achievement in a way that befit the first king of all of Wales. He invaded England. And he marched into Arkenfield. And the fact that he chose this region gives us a sense of the scale of responsibility and also authority that King Gruffith of Wales believed he had. Because Arkenfield wasn't just some random district on the border of England and Wales. Arkenfield, which was in southwestern Herefordshire, had deep, deep roots in Wales, going all the way back to the Kingdom of Erging, which was eventually annexed by Mercia in the 8th century. But even though they were technically Mercian, the people who lived there during this period had their own laws and customs. And even today, you can see evidence of the Welsh connection in place names, such as Dewchurch, which is a derivation of Dewey Sant, St. David. In fact, historians have suggested that the cultural conflict centered on this area between the people who lived in the southwestern side of the River Wye, who saw themselves as culturally Welsh, and the people who lived on the other side, who saw themselves as culturally English, was the catalyst for the famous Welsh poem, Armes Prydianne which imagined a great alliance of virtually all of the non-English people in Britain, Ireland, and even Brittany, gathering together and then driving the Saxons out of Britain. When it comes to the Welsh imagination during this era, Hereford was a whole thing. And adding even more drama to this move, Hereford also functioned as the administrative center for English operations in the region. Meaning that issues of trade, mustering of soldiers, distribution of goods, and all manner of other things ran through that town. Meaning it was a key strategic target for any larger campaign into England. And also, if you're doing a shorter campaign, a wealthy target for raiding. So of course the first true king of all of Wales went straight there. I mean, sure this ousted english noble elfgar did have a beef with king edward and his court but when you look where they went and what it meant culturally it's pretty clear why king gruffith signed on to this venture and why ultimately it really was his campaign and when gruffith and his army moved into herefordshire the welsh king would have entered through the southern portion and kept his army close to the banks of the river wye Thus, ensuring that they would remain close to the supporting fleet of about a thousand mercenaries provided by Elfgar. Then they would have made their way north, again following the river. In doing so, they would have circumvented the line of burrs that had been erected in northern Herefordshire. You see, up until this moment, the lords of Herefordshire probably believed that their southern flank was relatively secure, and any serious threat would have come from the north. They quickly learned their mistake. In fact, the trauma of this invasion was so significant that in just over a decade, the English would set about constructing castles along the southern portion of Herefordshire, ensuring that they can control all movement through the River Wye. But that's years away at this point, and right now the path was wide open, and King Gruffith, Elfgar, and their land and sea forces were taking full advantage of it. They ravaged their way through the lands, heading towards Hereford. And just a ways up river, waiting for them, was King Edward's ally, Earl Ralph, and the Ferd of Herefordshire. And what happened next was so significant that it's recorded in both the Welsh and the English sources. And the Welsh seemed pretty chuffed about it. Quote, against him rose up the Saxons, and with them a mighty host, and with Earl Ralph as their leader. And they drew up their army and prepared for battle. And Gruffith, fearless and with a well ordered army, fell upon them. And after bitter, fierce fighting, the Saxons, unable to withstand the onslaught of the Britons, turned to flight after a great slaughter of them. And Gruffith pursued them to within the walls of Hereford. And there he massacred them, and destroyed the walls, and burned the town. And with vast spoil, he returned home, eminently worthy. End quote. That's from the Welsh Chronicle, the Chronicle of the Princes. And we're told that King Gruffith and his Welsh forces were well-disciplined, capable, and utterly ruthless. And for the Welsh chroniclers, this was an unqualified success. And that's important to note, because many of the elements here are shocking and awful to us reading it today. Like, you know, a complete massacre of a city. But at the time, this was being written of in a positive light. The slaughter and looting that Gruffith and his forces carried out was proof of his worthiness to rule. And this was in line with Welsh culture at the time. And so while such acts don't sound heroic to us today, for the intended audience, this was like the climax of an Avengers film. This was a righteous ass beating. And as such, I'm actually not surprised that Elfgar and his Vikings weren't even mentioned. No reason to share the spotlight especially since the aggrieved Englishman and his mercs only formed a small portion of the overall army. For the Welsh, this was Gruffith's victory. Elfgar was just a passenger. Now, as you might imagine, the English took a slightly different tone when talking about this. And the various versions of the Chronicle all tell roughly the same story, though with differing levels of detail. Version E of the Chronicle, which is the version that's friendliest to the House of Godwin, Gives us the shortest and most casual account. Quote, Earl Elfgar sought the protection of Griffith in Wales. And in this year, Griffith and Elfgar burned down St. Athelbright's Minster and all the city of Hereford. End quote. Basically, yeah, Elfgar and Griffith cause problems, but we really should move on with our lives. And that probably was the account that you'd want if your family was ultimately responsible for the protection of the realm. No need to discuss how many lay dead, and definitely no need to bring up the fact that all of this happened because Edith and Harold seized lands that Elfgar wanted, and then Tostig was beefing with Elfgar's family. No, just mention what was burned, put the blame on Elfgar and that Welshman who doesn't even get the dignity of a title, and then move on. Now contrast that with version C of the Chronicle, which outright hates the House of Godwin. After detailing how this all had begun because Elfgar had been outlawed despite being completely innocent according to Version C, the account goes on to say that he, quote, "...then went to Ireland and there got himself a fleet. It was 18 ships apart from his own. And then they went to Wales to King Griffith with that force. And he took them into his protection. And then they gathered a large force with the Irishmen and with the Welsh. And Earl Ralph gathered a large force at Hereford Town." And there battle was joined. But before any spear had been thrown, the English army fled because they were on horseback. And many were killed there, about four or five hundred men. And they killed none in return. And then they went back to town and burned it with the famous minster, which Athelstan, the venerable bishop, had had built. They stripped and robbed it of relics, investments, and everything, and killed the people and some they carried off end quote. The Chronicle then tells us that, quote, this slaughter was on 24 October, end quote. You can see how they paint this picture differently. To start with, Version C properly titles King Gruffith, which is nice. But the real star of this show is the level of detail we're given. We're told that Earl Ralph, the king's nephew and his hand-picked choice to rule Herefordshire, was tasked with arranging the defense of Hereford. Now, Ralph wasn't just the king's nephew. He, like most of King Edward's allies, was also Norman. And in this entry, we're told that Ralph ordered his men to ride to battle on horseback. And this form of battle, of open cavalry charges, was a pretty standard Norman method of war. But it wasn't how the English fought. The English had horses. In fact, they rode horses regularly. They even had horses present at many of their battles, but for transport, not for cavalry. Now, granted, some of the elite members of the English military would ride into battle. For quite some time, we've heard occasional references to English cavalry. In fact, you might recall that Alfred led a cavalry force against the Northmen back before he became king. But that really was the exception, and it was restricted to only a select few members of the Werod, and later Huscarls. Typically, if an English warrior had a horse, he would ride it to the battlefield, then dismount and join the shield wall because that's how the vast bulk of English warfare was carried out. That was what they were trained for. That was all they trained for. The fyrd weren't completely untrained. They'd been taught how to fight with a shield and spear. They also knew how to ride horses. But it's a very different thing to ask them to do both of those things at the same time. And yet, you had this Norman Earl ordering the Ferd to mount up and ride into battle, which would be a little like asking the Air Force to jump onto the back of a pickup truck, grab a rifle, and Mad Max their way through the enemy. The Air Force doesn't have a Fast and Furious division, so it's probably not gonna go very well. And sure enough, this didn't go well for the poor English warriors under their French Earl either. And because this version of the Chronicle isn't all that fond of the Godwins, We're also told that it was a slaughter and we're given casualty numbers. And then the scribes go even further and take the time to point out that not a single Welshman was killed in return. In many ways, the material and detail that we see in version C mirrors what we see in the Welsh Chronicle of the Princes. But not entirely. There is one key difference. Version C is a condemnation. The Chronicle of the Princes, on the other hand, was a hype track. However, as detailed as version C is, it really is John of Worcester who gives us our best account from the English perspective. Having joined forces, Gruffith and Elfgar entered Herefordshire with the intention of laying waste the English borders. Against them, the timorous Earl Ralph, son of King Edward's sister, mustered an army and, meeting them on 24 October, two miles from the city of Hereford, he ordered the English, contrary to custom, to fight on horseback. But when they were about to join battle, the Earl, with his French and nobles, was the first to take flight. The English, seeing this, followed their commander in flight. Almost the whole of the enemy pursued them, and slew 400 or 500 of them, and wounded many. Then, having gained the victory, King Gruffith and Earl Elfgar entered Hereford, "...slew the seven canons who had held the doors of the main basilica, burnt the minster which Athelstan, God's Christian bishop, had built, with all the ornaments and relics of St. Athelbert king and martyr, and of other saints, killed many citizens, took many captives, despoiled and burned the city, and returned enriched with a lavish quantity of booty." So from John, we hear a very similar account to what we've heard in version C and also in the Welsh Chronicle of the Princes. But John does add an important detail. It was Earl Ralph and his French companions who had started the route. And here's the thing about that. That preemptive flight either happened or was widely believed. Because following this slaughter, Earl Ralph had earned a nickname. Ralph the Timid. So this probably did happen, which does leave us the question of why did Ralph order the Ferd to saddle up and ride? And why did he flee so quickly? Well, considering that the Welsh forces were described in professional terms, and considering that they were able to ride down the fleeing Englishmen, even though they were on horseback, it's likely that what King Gruffith had brought into England wasn't simply an infantry force. It was almost certainly a combined force of infantry, cavalry, and archers. And Earl Ralph, upon seeing this, may have believed that an opposing cavalry force was their best chance at success. But upon seeing Unferth struggling to hold his shield in the reins at the same time, while also seeing the Welsh across the field riding around like the frigging Knights of the Round Table, maybe that caused Ralph to panic and flee. I think it's probably the most plausible answer to this. Now, some of you might have been surprised that I mentioned that I believe that King Gruffydd had archers with him, considering that archers weren't mentioned in any of the texts that I quoted. Well, there's a funny thing about that. Archers at this point in history were seen by most as kind of dishonorable in a military context, or at least not as heroic as combat with a sword or spear. Archery tended to be associated with the lower classes. And as such, the scribes writing these records didn't really pay all that much attention to them. But given what we know about medieval battles during this period, and what we know of how the Welsh arranged their armies, it's quite likely that King Gruffith had a mixed complement of warriors with him. Something else that these accounts generally agree on, but sounds a bit strange when you think about it, is that we're told that this was a slaughter. That the English routed, that they were butchered as they ran, that they fled into the city, and that the Welsh followed them in and continued the slaughter. But then we're also told that four to 500 people were killed, with many more wounded. And that suggests that when the city was breached, many must have successfully fled. And many of those that didn't must have been captured for sale in the slave markets of Dublin and elsewhere. Because four to 500 people is a lot, but it's not nearly enough to account for the city of Hereford and the ferd of Herefordshire that had been mustered. Now, as for how the Welsh forces were able to gain entry into the town, well, that's an interesting question as well. The defences of Hereford and elsewhere were famously sturdy. You'll probably remember that one of Athelflad's main projects was fortifying her territory, and Hereford was part of that. However, that was also a long time ago. And it's possible that the walls of Hereford had been neglected and left to decay. And so by the 11th century, they were easily breached. In fact, following the Welsh sacking, Harold Godwinson put a significant amount of effort into rebuilding the fortifications of the town. Far more than you'd expect if he was just trying to repair some damage from a single battle. Which suggests that the walls of the town were a far cry from what they'd been in their heyday. And that certainly could have been part of the reason why the town was so easily breached. Then you also had the possible issue of incompetence. One version of the Welsh Chronicle tells us that the reason why King Gruffith and his forces were able to enter the town so easily was because its defenders, those who'd been left behind while Ralph took most of his force out into the field, weren't expecting anyone to return so quickly. And so they were taking a break and were tucking into their dinner. Live by the fourth male, die by the fourth male. Another thing these details give us is a rough approximation of the scale of the conflict and the size of the relative forces. Because the fact that Gruffith was able to accomplish this, and he apparently was able to pull it off with few or possibly even no casualties, suggests that his army dwarfed the meager defenses that Ralph and the Ferd of Hereford was able to muster. And before I leave Gruffith's sack of Hereford, I want to mention one final thing that stands out to me. The killing of the clergy and the burning of the minster. The English sources all speak of it. Even the amazingly terse version E of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle mentions it. But not the Welsh sources. The Welsh chronicles tell us of fierce fighting, of heroic slaughter, and of massive amounts of booty being seized. But as for anything regarding the minster which, according to the English, was where a lot of that booty came from, not a peep. And that might strike you as strange, considering that looting of religious buildings was fairly commonplace during this era. I mean, if God struck down every noble who looted a religious building in Britain, I'm not sure there'd be any nobles left. They were all doing it. The English looted Welsh religious buildings. The Welsh looted English religious buildings. The English looted English religious buildings. The Welsh looted Welsh religious buildings. The Irish looted everyone. Just everyone was involved in this thing. And it seems like the rule was, as soon as a campaign began, all bets were off. And even when a campaign wasn't on, sometimes a noble just needed some spare cash and they knew how to go get it. So I find it highly unlikely that the Welsh scribes were clutching their pearls at the thought of an English minster being looted. And yet, they didn't mention it. And when later Welsh scribes finally talked about this event, such as in the life of St Gwyndhlu, we're told that it definitely wasn't King Gruffith and the good Welsh soldiers who sacked the minster. It was actually Elfgar and his Vikings. So what gives? Well, here's the thing about looting religious houses. Raiding God's piggy bank was one thing, but killing clergy was something else entirely. That was abominable. That was shameful. That was unforgivable. Or maybe it could be forgiven, but you better be prepared to pay heavily for the absolution. And according to the English sources, Griffith's army didn't just sack and loot the Minster. They also killed the clergy. So that took what would have been seen as a heroic story of victory and made it ungodly. So naturally, that part was ignored entirely. And then it was later blamed on the Vikings out of Ireland and their English employer. But honestly, that excuse looks entirely too convenient. And I think the blame was likely much more close to home for the Welsh. You see, Athelstan, the Bishop of Hereford, was an old man. He was also blind. And so, the Welsh bishop, Tremerig, had been appointed as his deputy to assist him in his duties. You'll recall that Hereford was culturally mixed, so a Welsh bishop serving as a deputy to an English bishop wasn't unheard of. But interestingly, following the destruction of the Minster and the killing of the clergy, we're told that the Welsh bishop Tremorig passed away. And the way it's described makes it sound like the burden of what happened at the Minster was simply too much for the Welsh bishop's heart to bear. Then, a few months later, Bishop Athelstan died as well. In his place, Leofgar was appointed as the Bishop of Hereford. And later that year, he was killed in battle by King Gruffith. A pattern starts to emerge from these documents. And it was clear enough that William of Malmesbury actually commented that no Bishop of Hereford ever lived that long. And it seems to me that the biggest risk factor for a bishop's health, at least in Hereford, was his proximity to King Gruffydd of Wales. So while the scribes got the willies about the idea of dead clergy, I get the impression that King Gruffydd wasn't so squeamish. But regardless of whether things got out of hand or whether Gruffith and his men were just being thorough, the fact remained that he was victorious. And he was now riding back across the border with a massive amount of loot and a very enthusiastic army. Meanwhile, in the court of King Edward, panic was setting in. And so the king and his chief counselor, Earl Harold, issued an order. They were calling the Ferd. All of them. But I don't get the sense that King Gruffith, now, ruling over all of Wales and commanding a victorious and enthusiastic army, would have been all that concerned. By all means, come to Wales. See what happens. Thanks for listening.